Awesome. Yeah, let's praise Jesus again. Success must have ingredient of an ingredient of preparation. Preparation is paramount to our victory. Preparation is paramount to our success. We want to know that our generals are prepared before they usher and lead our nation into war, don't we? We want to know that our surgeons are prepared before we entrust ourselves to go under the knife. Preparation is paramount to success. And in the same way, Joshua chapter 5, we have a chapter of how the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, prepared for the battle to take Jericho. They just crossed the Jordan River. They just left the wilderness. They crossed the Jordan, and now they're entered into the promised land. And it's such a practical chapter for us because the book of Joshua's New Testament counterpart is the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is laying hold of that which has been given to us in Christ. Some old songs you might have sung growing up as a kid would reference the Jordan River as a metaphor to crossing from death to heaven into Canaan land, the promised land. That's actually not an accurate metaphor because we know in heaven there's not going to be battles. The Jordan River is not a metaphor for physical death going into the promised land of heaven. The Jordan River that we looked at last week, the Israelites crossed, is a metaphor of being led from bondage and sin to the promised land of newness and life of our new life in Christ, which is why the book of Ephesians is the New Testament counterpart to the book of Joshua, because that which has been promised to us, that which has been given to us in Christ is ours, fullness of life, abundant life, our identity in Christ, and then God says, fight for it, Ephesians chapter 6, here's the spiritual armor, put it on, because every day is a battle. And in the same way, the promised land was given to the Israelites, and they crossed the Jordan River, which was a metaphor from passing from death to life, the old life to the new life, bondage in Egypt to the promised land. The land was theirs. God promised it to them. God gave it to them. And they crossed the Jordan River. They are now in the promised land. They are now in Canaan land. And now it's time to possess that in which God has promised them. And God says, fight for it. It's yours. Fight for it. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from a position of victory. But preparation is key to success. So in Joshua chapter 5, we see how Joshua, the new leader of the Hebrew people, is going to prepare uh, this entire people, one to two million Hebrews who had been traveling, wandering aimlessly for 40 years in the wilderness. And now they've crossed the Jordan. And now it's time to inherit their land. Now it's time to go to the first target on their map, and that's the city of Jericho. It's time to fight. And before they fight, as we're going to see next week, chapter 5 is how they prepared for this battle. Now, you would think that now that Israel has all the momentum in the world, and Jericho is being caught by surprise, because Jericho figured that since it's the springtime, since it's the harvest season— 
and the Jordan River is at full tide and it's dangerous. Nobody would be able to cross, especially an entire people. They thought that they had at least a matter of a few weeks, at least, if not, a matter of a few months before Israel crossed the Jordan River. But God miraculously caused the Jordan River to dry up. They crossed on dry ground. And so now, the, the, the citizens of Jericho are terrified. Their hearts were melting before. Now they realize they don't have a few months. They don't even have a few weeks. Israel's crossed the Jordan River. See, the crossing of the Jordan River was not only a huge step of faith. It was an invasion on enemy territory. It was like the Allies invading the beaches of Normandy. And the citizens, the citizens of Jericho were terrified. And they realized they don't have a few weeks. They don't have a few months. Israel has crossed. They were afraid before. Now their hearts are really melted. Israel was emboldened before. Now they are really emboldened. Jericho is absolutely ill-prepared. Their momentum and their hearts are at an all-time low. Israel's momentum is at an all-time high. They also had the element of surprise. Now's the time to fight. Now's the time to take the opportunity to seize Jericho when momentum is up for them, when momentum is down for Jericho, when they have the element of surprise. But that's not what they do. What they do is absolutely, entirely counterintuitive, as is what most of what God does to us is counterintuitive. Let's read about it. Chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted away. There was no longer any spirit in them. Because of the people of Israel. So now's the time to strike, right? Now's the time to fight. Verse 2. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah, Haraloth. Absolutely counterintuitive. They had the enemy on the run. They had the element of surprise. They had all the momentum in the world. It is time to attack. And instead, Joshua impairs every fighting man in his army for at least a couple of weeks by circumcising these grown men. And they have to have a period of healing after this. This is absolutely counterintuitive. This gives the enemy time to regroup. And this makes... The entire nation of, of Israel subject to surprise attack by the enemy if spies go back and say they've all circumcised themselves. None of the men can fight. Why would God do that? Because God's ways of pre preparation are very different from our ways of preparation. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into, this, into, into temptation. In other, in other words, prepare yourself. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, prepare yourself. Every day we enter into a spiritual battle. Every day we enter into a battle to overcome temptation, to walk in our identity in Christ, to honor God with our lives, to love others as Christ has loved us. Every day we walk into a battle to win the day for Christ. The day has been given to us, but we have to fight for that day. 
We don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of victory. And so often believers walk around discouraged, defeated, dejected, demoralized, in despair, living in the past because they are ill-prepared and successively lose battles day after day because we think that preparation is consistent with with our intuition, but it's oftentimes counterintuitive with our intuition. And so let's take a case study, let's take applications from this case study on how to prepare God's way. So we're going to draw four principles from this text, and then we're going to partake of communion together as the text leads us to do so. The first principle that we gather is that every morning we wake up before we get out of bed, every morning before we set about to knock off items on our agenda list, every day we must renew our relationship with the Lord. This is why Joshua led these hundreds of thousands of fighting men to circumcise themselves when they miraculously crossed the Jordan River. Let's read about it. Verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And if you've been in this series, you know the reason that an entire generation wandered in the wilderness and died in the wilderness, including Moses, is because they lacked the faith to enter into the promised land. And God said, you want to wander around in the wilderness? You want to dream about the bondage that I delivered you from? Fine, then I'll let you perish in the wilderness. Your children will take the land. And these children, the 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness, these children were never circumcised. What's the big deal of that? Well, because when God made a covenant with his man Abraham, have you ever wondered why God chose the people of Israel? Why didn't he choose the Irish? Why didn't he choose the Germans? Why why, why didn't he choose the Russians? Why why did God choose Israel? Why is Israel God's people? Why didn't didn't he choose the Venezuelans? Why, Why Israel? God didn't choose a nation. God chose a man. The man's name was Abram. Abram had a miraculous son, Isaac, with his wife Sarah. Isaac had a son, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons. These 12 sons had many kids. This family became a nation. God never chose a nation. God chose a man. And he made a covenant with this man. If you believe me, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through your offspring. Thus the messianic promise that Christ will be born. And the world will be blessed through you. If you believe me, then I'll make a great nation out of you, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And anytime God makes a covenant, anytime God makes a contract with a people, then he has them sign that contract, or he signs that contract, so that anytime you begin to doubt, you can look at that signature and be reminded of God's promise that he's faithful. And the signature on the covenant that God made with his people was circumcision. God told Abraham, circumcise yourself, circumcise your son Isaac, and all your sons after this, circumcise, your, circumcise yourself on the eighth day. And anytime you begin to wonder whether or not I'm going to bless you, whether or not I'm going to make a great nation out of you, whether or not I'm going to give you that land, whether or not through the Messiah that will be born one day, I'm going to bless the world through you, look at the sign of circumcision and remember my promise. Why circumcision? 
God often chose the physical to reveal a spiritual principle. And the physical was the removal of an unclean part of the body as a metaphor for the spiritual to remove the unclean sin nature. God never cared about the physical act of circumcision. It was only a sign of the spiritual act that he would accomplish through Jesus who would one day be born who would remove from us a sin nature. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 6 I believe it is says I never cared about the physical act of circumcision what I care about is the spiritual act of removing the sin nature from your heart. I don't really care about circumcising yourselves physically what I care about is you circumcising your heart removing the sin nature from your heart. And this is going to be accomplished through the Messiah paying for your sins and me giving you my spirit. And I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to amputate your sin nature and I'm going to impute my righteous nature in your heart. Paul wrote about this in Galatians. He said, God never really cared about the circumcision. The circumcision never made anybody right with God. The circumcision was just a picture of Jesus who would be born, who would circumcise your heart. He would amputate your sin nature, and he would impute his righteousness and give you a new nature. But as the years unfolded, they began to worship the act of circumcision and forget about the covenant that it represented. And they forgot all about the circumcision of their heart, and they became infatuated with the circumcision of the flesh. And as a result, Paul told the Galatians, I wish you would go the whole way and just emasculate yourselves, because this thing called circumcision is nothing when it counts as righteousness. What matters is that Christ amputates your sin nature and imputes to you his own righteousness by trusting in Christ alone. You see, what matters? The wedding ring or the faithfulness that the wedding ring proclaims. Who cares about a wedding ring if your marriage partner is not faithful? If you catch them in a long string of affairs and you're infuriated and they say, but I wore my wedding ring. You would say, I could care less about your wedding ring. And what if somebody didn't wear the wedding ring but were absolutely faithful? You'd say, I don't care about the wedding ring. The ring is simply symbolic of the faithfulness of the relationship. And that's what circumcision is. It's a sign of the relationship that God will have with us through Christ when he amputates our sin nature and imputes to us his own righteousness. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will remove from you a heart of stone, in other words, circumcision of the heart. I will amputate your sin nature, and I will give you a new heart. In other words, imputed righteousness of Christ through the Holy Spirit. I will give you a new heart and cause you to follow my ways. Can you believe that the children of Israel for 40 years had not practiced circumcision? They were not remembering the covenant that God made with Abraham. They were not reminded of how God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses that he would give them a land. No wonder they were fearful. No wonder they were afraid. They weren't rehearsing and remembering and meditating upon the promise God gave to them. They weren't practicing circumcision, thus reflecting upon God's promises and placing their hope 
and the promises that he'd given to them. They'd forgotten all about that. They were simply wandering around in the wilderness. And anytime we don't rehearse, anytime our minds are devoid of the promises of God, our minds will begin longing for the Egypt that God delivered us from. Why do you think people fall back into the same sin over and over and over? Because at some point, they stop remembering and rehearsing and meditating upon and praying back to God His promises. And when our minds are devoid of His promises, our minds begin longing for that Egypt that God delivered us from. So they circumcised themselves. They renewed their relationship with the Lord. And the reason that we walk defeated and dejected each and every day is because we fail to renew our relationship with the Lord before we get out of bed. We fail to renew our relationship with the Lord as we spend time with Him with our first cup of coffee of the day. We fail to renew our relationship with the Lord as we're driving to work. We constantly renew our relationship with the Lord. Joshua was a great leader. Because first and foremost, he prepared his people's heart by renewing their relationship with the Lord, by reinstating this covenant that was sealed by circumcision. Verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. But God always maintains a remnant. Verse 7. So it was with their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. Remember that God raised children up in the place of parents who didn't walk with the Lord. Remember that. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way, and that's why when they crossed the Jordan River, before they seized the opportunity that made sense to human intellect and human ambition, first things first, they renewed their commitment with the Lord. Sometimes you might hit the snooze button a few too many times, and it makes sense to rush off. Don't do that. Renew your commitment with the Lord each and every day. Second principle we gain from this... um, case study. Not only did they renew their relationship with the Lord, secondly, they rolled away their reproach through this relationship with the Lord. I like this. Let's continue to read verse 8. When the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, oh, can you imagine? Hundreds of thousands of men circumcised. They remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. They made themselves vulnerable to their enemy when they just invaded enemy territory. Can you imagine if when the Allies invaded the beaches of Normandy, the first thing was they impaired themselves physically? I mean, what a vulnerable situation this puts yourself in. But they were trusting in God, and God is attracted to vulnerability. He defends vulnerability when we trust in Him to renew our relationship with Him. Don't think you have to win the battles on your own by being bigger and, and stronger and faster and all of these human things and smarter. Renew your relationship with the Lord. This is the most important thing you can do each and every day. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Look at this. It's one miraculous thing for God to take his people out of Egypt, but it's quite another more challenging thing to take Egypt out of God's people. And this is the real miracle of salvation. 
not getting somebody out of sin, but getting that sin out of their heart, giving them a new nature. We can get anybody out of sin for a little bit if they feel bad enough, but getting that sin out of their heart so they're new creatures, that's the real miracle of salvation. And God says in verse 9, today I have rolled away the reproach from you. And this day, the name of that place is called Gilgal, or similar to the Hebrew Galgal, which means roll away the reproach. In other words, God is saying, you're not your parents. You're not your parents. Your parents committed idolatry for 40 years. You're not your parents. Your parents never appreciated my blessings on their life. You're not your parents. Your parents never honored me. They committed idolatry for 40 years. You're not your parents. And when they renewed their relationship with him, he rolled that reproach off of them. So that he took them not only out of Egypt, but he took Egypt out of the heart of that generation. And he took the wilderness out of the heart of that generation. And so it is for us. Your parents' marriage may have ended in divorce. You're not your parents. Your parents may have been addicted to narcotics and alcohol. You're not your parents. Your parents may have never dreamt of the stars and soared in the sky, but instead spent their life groveling on the ground like a chicken. You're not your parents. Through Christ, he's given us a new heart, a new nature, and he rolls that reproach off of us. You're not your past. You're not your parents' past. Your parents' past, your past is not your present. It's not your identity. It is not the prophet of your future. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. That's who you are. I want to read to you a a book. Um, This won't take long. Max Lucado wrote it. It's a really wonderful book. It's called You Are Special. And it talks about how we can live without reproach. We can live in a manner that reproach is rolled off of us. Because this is what God is teaching Israel before they go into battle. You're not your parents. You are mine. You're not destined to live the same life that your parents lived. You are mine. You are not that generation. You're a new generation. Listen to this great story. The Wemucks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemuck was different. Some had big noses. Others had large eyes. Some were tall. Others were short. Some wore hats. Others wore coats. But all were made by the same carver and all lived in the same village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. 
Some wimmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else to get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then when he would try to explain why he fell, he would say something silly, and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. And after a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots. The wooden people agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had a lot of dots. He felt better around them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots, so they would give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So we asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. And with that, the women who had no stickers turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinella cried out. Lucia didn't hear. So Punchinella went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving others dots and stars. It's not right, he muttered to himself. And he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened as the, at the sight of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here, and he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello! The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come in and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name, the little wimmick said. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what other wimmicks think. You don't? No. And you shouldn't either. Who are they to give you stars or dots? They're Wemmicks, just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you're special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast, I can't jump, my paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine, that's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. 
I came because I met someone who has no mark, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the sticker stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she has decided what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come see me every day and let me remind you how much I love you. Eli lifted Ponchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the women walked out the door, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Ponchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thinks he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell off the ground. And this is... And this is what God is doing with his people. He's saying, don't rush off to battle. Stop. Renew your relationship with me. And not only that, let the reproach roll off of you. You're not your parents. You're not the sins of your parents. You're not Egypt. You're not the wilderness. You're not what others say about you. You're mine. You're my people. And I love you. And I have plans for you. And I'm with you. And I'm for you. The third principle that we gather from this case study. Rely on the Lord's goodness afresh. Rely on the Lord's goodness afresh. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover. This, by the way, is the first time they've partaken of the Passover as a people for 38 years. One of the reasons that Joshua reinstituted circumcision was so that they could be ceremonial, ceremonially clean for Passover. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And what is the Passover? It's remembering how the blood of the lamb was smeared over the door and death passed over God's people and God delivered his people out of bondage. He delivered his people out of Egypt. Verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Watch this. A 40-year miracle is about to stop. A 40-year miracle is about to stop. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. Did you see that? For 40 years, they'd been partaking of manna, angel food that came from heaven. It tasted like honey. It was kind of like bread. It dissolved in their mouth. I'm sure it tastes like chicken, right? Everything tastes like chicken. But the moment they ate of the produce from the land, who planted that for them? Well, when they crossed the Jordan on dry ground, their enemies scattered and they left grain that they had grown behind and they ate food. This is the first time in 40 years Israel's not eating manna. They're eating food from the ground and the manna never came back. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land. That year when the people walked through the Jordan River, that was a picture of walking in Christ's baptism when you and I are saved today. And on the other side, they ate of the fruit of the land. That's a picture of Christ coming back from the grave. And the Passover for us is not the lamb over the doorpost. It's the lamb of God, Jesus Christ on a cross so that the law of sin and death 
will pass over us. And now that we trust in that, we rely on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ each and every day for our daily sustenance. Which is why in a moment we're going to take a, partake of communion here as a church family. And I'm just going to have you stand and we're going to worship together. We do communion different ways at different times around here. But this morning, just come down on your own. Take the juice, take the bread. The bread represents the Lamb of God, Christ on the cross. And His blood was shed to wash us clean. And so partake of the bread and partake of the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And then spend some time with the Lord, remembering His goodness afresh. And this is what Israel's doing. They renewed their relationship. The reproach of their past and the reproach of their parents' sins rolled off of them. The things that people said about them rolled off of them as they remembered afresh that they're loved by God, the children of God, and for our context, the righteousness of God. We are circumcised, not physically. We are circumcised spiritually. Our sin nature has been amputated. We've been clothed in the righteous nature of the Spirit of Christ. And so we remember God's goodness on the cross, and we reflect upon His faithfulness and rely on His faithfulness afresh each and every day. And so you can go back to your seats and take of the elements, or you can stay around here and just spend time with the Lord and partake of the elements. And then when you do go back to the seat, and after you pray and spend time with the Lord and repent of sin, and then just enter back in with the worship team as we worship the Lord and we praise Him for His goodness. I text Forrest, and I, Forrest introduced us to a song by Elevation Worship called He's Going to Do It Again. I said, do you remember that song? Could you do that song? And he said, yeah, sure. So we're just going to be reflecting as we worship, as we partake of communion on the reality that God delivered Egypt. God delivered Israel from Egypt. God delivered the Israelites through Joshua from the wilderness. God delivered us from Egypt through the blood of Christ. God is with us. God is for us. God is carrying us. God is faithful. We, we reflect upon his goodness afresh as we partake of communion. And then the fourth action step, the fourth principle that we're going to gather here is this. Recognize the holy ground on your battleground. This is critical. Recognize holy ground on your battleground. Verse 13. When Joshua was, was by Jericho... He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Joshua was aggressive. Sometimes he had to hold it back a little bit. Moses was timid. He, by the Spirit, had to be equipped to step out in boldness. I think Joshua, by nature, was bold. He, by the Spirit, had to be equipped to be meek and trust. I believe that was his temperament. And he sees a man, more than a man, with a sword. And Joshua, he's getting ready to fight. And he says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And by the, by the looks of this man, this is going to determine the battle. Whose side are you on? And this man, who's more than a man, said, no. Another translation, neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus appeared before Abraham through Melchizedek, or as Jesus appeared before Abram, the pilgrim, as being a wandering stranger who would enjoy a meal with him. 
And as Jesus appeared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as the fourth man in the fiery furnace, so Jesus appears in the Old Testament to a warrior as a warrior. And this warrior says to Jesus, whose side are you on? And Jesus says, neither. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his his face to the earth, and he worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, this reminds you of when God told Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. The Lord said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Every day we're in a battle. And as we renew our commitment with the Lord, as the reproach of our past rolls off of us, as we remember afresh God's goodness in our life, we have to find holy ground in our battleground. And this is the place of complete, of complete surrender and submission to our Lord Jesus Christ as we worship him. And as you worship him, you know you have the momentum in the battle. And I think this is so practical for us today because Republicans are so certain that God's a Republican when he's coming in his second coming, he's going to be waving the American flag. Democrats are so certain that Jesus is on their side. And when we have enemies, we are so certain that God is on our side and he wants to destroy them, but he's willing that none should perish. I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln who said in the midst of the Civil War, when I pray, I'm reminded that my enemies are praying to the same God. The question that we must ask, not every single day, okay, God, go, are you going to go get my enemies for for me? The question we have to ask every single day, am I on God's side? It's not God whose side are you on, it's am I on God's side? And we know that we're on God's side when we're entirely submissive to our Lord, consecrated before Him. Walking as a surrendered child of God in a spirit of worship. And as we walk in a spirit of worship, everything that we touch will be glorious because we are a conduit of the king of glory that we are in submission to and worshiping. Everything that we touch will be blessed because we are in communion with the God of blessing and the God of all power. Everything that we put our hand to, we will be victorious because we are in submission to and worshiping and in fellowship with the God who conquered death. If we walk in submission to the Lord, we are on high ground. If we walk in the spirit of worship in the battleground, we are on high ground. Everything we touch will be glorious, beautiful, blessed, and the battle will be ours. Christians today don't care about high ground. They care about their petty arguments and just believing that God is just as indignant as, as they are with their, with their little pet arguments. What we need more than anything else is to find the high ground on our battle ground and make sure that we are walking in submission and complete worship to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when a revival will break out through us. Would you stand with me? We're about to enter into worship as we partake of communion together. And as the worship team comes on up, here's the elements here. Just come forward in a spirit of reverence. You can go back to your seats. You can spend time with the Lord up here at the altar. Um, Repent of sin. Renew your relationship with the Lord. Renew your covenant with the Lord. Let the reproach of the enemies fall off of you.
Remember afresh the goodness of God. And find the high ground in your battleground. How many of you are in a battle? Raise your hand. I won't make you raise your hand on this, but ask yourself this question. Are you on high ground? Are you on high ground? Are you walking in a spirit of submission to the Lord, to the captain, to the host of the army? Have you gotten the roles confused? Do you treat God like your servant boy or your Or are you the Lord's surrendered soldier in this battle? Is you're entirely submissive to him and walking in a spirit of worship before him? How do you treat the Lord? Like your servant boy? Or like a captain of the army of the Lord that he is? That's the high ground. Be sure you're on the high ground in this battle. Every day, every day, this is how we prepare. We renew our relationship before we get out of bed. We let the reproach of our past roll off of us. We remember afresh the Lord's goodness. Find the high ground in your battleground. Live a life of worship. Live a life of complete surrender. Let me pray for you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that not one heart would be the same. We would all be different. We would all leave transformed, O God. Let us all leave transformed. So the altars are open and you can partake of the elements. We started this series strong and courageous because I know that every one of you are going through some battle. And this is a book about battles. It's a book about claiming what we have in Christ in terms of the blessings he's promised us and our identity in Christ and all the privileges of of his children. And it's about living each and every day victoriously so that we can live with a strong and courageous disposition for the glory of God and the hope of the world. And we can do that through adequate preparation every day, throughout the day. Renew your relationship with the Lord. Let the reproach of the past always roll off of you. Don't let any reproach ever stick. Because that doesn't matter. All that matters is what God says about you. And he says, you're mine. You're bought with a price. I love you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If I treated you with perfect graciousness in the cross when you were dead in sins, how will I treat you now that you're my righteous child? Remember afresh throughout the day his goodness. He did it then. He's going to do it again. He didn't bring you this far to just leave you hanging. He brought you this far to take you all the way. And make sure you walk through each day on the high ground of the battleground. And the high ground is not making sure that God is mad at your enemies and he's for you. It's making sure that you're completely surrendered to the captain of the host of the army of the Lord and walk in the spirit of worship. So God bless you and you are dismissed.